1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Motesa Hajizadeh, and today I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Richard Hoffman. Dr. Richard Hoffman is Professor Emeritus in in History at at York University in Toronto and the author of the very famous book, An Environmental History of Medieval Europe. Today, he's here with us to talk about his latest book, which was published just a few months ago, called The Catch, An Environmental History of Medieval European Fisheries which was published by Cambridge University Press. Richard, welcome to New Books Network. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Before we start, can you briefly introduce yourself and tell us about your field of expertise?
0: Okay. Uh, I am an interdisciplinary medievalist who specializes in environmental history. Uh, My my work has tried to connect medieval world and the natural world around it. I'm particularly interested in uh, how people made use of their natural world and how material consequences of that experience affected the way they behave. I came to environmental history from being an economic historian, uh, and I wrote things on agrarian history, particularly of Central Europe, and then gradually slid into uh, these questions of natural resources. Uh, I was asked to write a you know, to write an encyclopedia about medieval fish ponds, which I thought would be boom easy. Um, it turned out it wasn't because most of the people who wrote about them either didn't know about fish or didn't know about the Middle Ages, um, and so we had these silos that. Um, Wrote about certain things, but not about others, and paid no attention to one another. And that is also true within uh, the uh, within the subfield of both medieval, of medieval of medieval history, and to some extent of medieval what we could call environmental history. Although some people don't realize that they can be read that way. Uh, people were, I felt, um, uh, intensely parochial. People who wrote about Danish uh, fisheries knew nothing about what was happening in France. Uh, and the like. And so I began to think about this whole project rather at a civilizational scale uh, and in it with an interdisciplinary pattern. So I use written records of all sources, um, I, uh, of all sorts, all genres, um, always with a critical eye of what can this tell me about how people thought about or performed in the world in which they lived. I became uh, acquainted with and now say consumers expert uh, in um, zoo archaeology, particularly zoo archaeology of fishes. I employ other kinds of archaeological material as available, fish weirs, some of those sorts of things. And I have a background um, largely out of personal interest in my my childhood upbringing uh, that enables me to work in ecology and with fisheries biology. So I bring as it were, the two cultures together, science and humanities, although my history is um, more a kind of science or social science probably um, than entirely humanities, uh, I am interested in how this world is working.
1: It's it's uh, fascinating about the sources that you have used, and when you talk about your background, it all makes more sense now. Uh, you're absolutely right that because like I told you before I started recording, i did part of my research on environmental humanities, and there were mm-hmm. times when I was reading books about environmental humanities, uh, sorry, about the environmental history of the 17th and 18th century. I realized that the people who are writing it are writing it from a modern perspective, and they know nothing mm-hmm. about the environment and the mm-hmm. cultural milieu of the time. So yes, I also felt that there was a gap. So it's great that a historian, who also has a background in in in, in economics and also <laughs> uh, ecology, has approached this topic. And I, uh, when 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 I read the book, and I'm sure when our listeners pick up the book to read it, hopefully they'll just realize the depth of information, and expertise that has gone into this book. Um, uh, let's, let's talk about the commercial, uh, f- first thing I must say that when I read the book, I was absolutely amazed because you know that there are a lot of myths about the middle ages, how it was mm-hmm. the dark ages and all those fictions. Mm-hmm. But when you read this, it just amazes you the, the level of expertise and knowledge and the sophistication of, of, of all the work that has gone into developing these fishers and also the commercial scale of it as well. So can you tell us about the commercial fishing, um, for, for Atlantic cod that you talk about in the book at the beginning, how it was developed and where, which areas uh, it was developed in. All right. First of all, we need to know something about codfish. Yeah. Uh,
0: they are bottom dwelling predators. Um, they eat all kinds of little fishes. They uh, surround the North Atlantic on, on both sides, um, down as far as some pieces of the Bay of Biscay on the European side. And let me point out that the book and practically all of my own work uh, is about medieval Western Christendom. I will get some Europe, medieval Europeans to the New World at the very end of the book, and that's one the reason the book ends where it does. Uh, for most of, well, let's say, for, for classical antiquity, there's really not much evidence of anybody in the literate world uh, consuming these particular animals, codfish. Uh, we have archaeological evidence that goes back to the late Bronze Age, Iron Age, for northern Norway, where the population is very dense and where very, very large cod goes seasonally to spawn. Uh, the Norwegian surpluses were probably moving. By that. Secondly, um, Rick, I'll come back to the Norwegian surpluses. Cod retain their oils for energy in their viscera, namely the liver. For people of a certain age, remember being compelled to consume cod liver oil. Uh, The oil is not in their flesh. So their flesh is dry. It can be dried and preserved. If it were oily, and we're going to talk later about herring which are extremely oily, the flesh will, without preservation, begin to decompose in a couple of hours. Cod won't. So cod can be dried, and in the far north, they can be effectively freeze-dried with the split of flesh put out under some degree of cover in the cold Arctic spring, and they freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw until they, they become what one 15th-century Italian described as hard as boards. And those can then be wrapped up, and as long as they're kept dry, they will keep for years, and they can be easily transported. So surpluses of khan produced in northern Norway were moving southwards as payments to local warlords and princes. Probably probably by sometime in the course of the early Middle Ages, they are certainly moving to the south of Norway, Bergen, which is the center of Norway, and also be the center of the country for the whole Middle Ages, and then further south by the year 1000, by which that time at least some bits of this are also reaching uh, British Isles and northern Germany. Uh, There are codfish along the British coast. There are codfish along the North Sea coast of of Germany and the Netherlands. Um, They don't run anywhere near as big. They run only, let's say, four or five kilos at the most. They were being a little exploited. Uh, And when they will be exploited, that will be a sort of slightly different market than is the case Were these large northern cods. After 1000, first Norwegian merchants, then English and German merchants, begin bringing these dried cods into uh, the northern parts of continental Europe uh, and are finding a market for it. That market seems to encourage the development of local artisanal commercial production of the same kind of fish. So we do have this mix of the big northern cods, and some of these things are well over a meter long, uh, And the local cods, which probably would finish out at least 60 or 70 uh, centimeters. Uh, and both of those will play a role in the market. There are different ways of handling, either that's preserved for fresh fish, because you're not going to get fresh Norwegian cod in the British Isles or in Hamburg. Uh, if you can get the fresh fish, you can get the preserved fish. In the north, you don't need to use salt, which is the most expensive but key element to most fish preservation. Um, further south, you can. So there will be a tension, even as the Norwegian trade to the south peaks in the 14th and 15th centuries, um, between salt preserved fish and these dried fish. And that will play a role, indeed, eventually, in the European exploitation of the Grand Banks. Uh, which won't happen till really the very end
1: of the Middle Ages, and the end of my book. Uh, and and was was fish an important uh, part of medieval diet? What archaeological That's, evidence do you have to get yes. Well, the
0: answer to that is yes and no. Um, fish are always expensive. They're expensive either in terms of the labor. They're expensive protein they're expensive in terms of the labor it takes to produce them, they're expensive on the market when we start to deal with markets. If you are a person who controls the labor of other people, you can put them to work to bring in fish to you. If you're a person who only has their own family, fish are nice, you might in certain circumstances be able to make use of them. But they were a preferred way to meet the ideological dietary rules that came out of Western Christian rules that said at certain seasons of the year, partly Advent, mainly Lent, um, and certain days of the week, eventually Friday, sometimes in, other, in certain places either wait, also Wednesday or 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 or, or Saturday, um, fish were the thing that you could use when you couldn't have flesh, and the cookbooks and diets and stuff tell you about that. The availability of fish varies with locality, and it you can't get the same fish on, in the western Mediterranean or on the Danube than you can get in the North Sea, and vice versa. And it varies with season, because unless you're really going to push a whole lot of expense into capturing fish, you catch fishes when and where they are concentrated Oftentimes to spawn, sometimes to feed on smaller things. And then there is there, there can be a vast surplus. At least there is a potential surplus, and it can go to further distances or people further down the, the train. Um, the written record shows us consuming fish, well, shows medieval people consuming fish um, throughout the Middle Ages. Or the archaeological re- uh, examination of remains of, from kitchen waste. Show and this is primarily going to be, especially in the early period, for relatively elite sites, show the presence of of fish remains, of favored fishes and of less favored fishes at times. The final way we can pin down that at least some medieval people consumed fish is by looking at stable isotopes in the human remains, which will, in terms of the ratio between two stable isotopes of calcium Tell us whether the person has consumed something from a marine source within insignificant quantity in the last ten years or so of their life. Looking at the relationship between 15 nitrogen and 14 nitrogen will tell us if the human being had consumed in that same period things from well up a trophic pyramid. Terrestrial trophic pyramids tend to be quite flat, equally grained. Well. Humans eat grain or they eat things that eat grain. We don't consume lions and tigers. Uh, marine fish, sorry, aquatic, aquatic ecologies have very long food chains. You have little plants, algae, slightly bigger animals eat the algae, slightly bigger animals eat the zooplankton, and it works on up. But humans tend to eat fairly large carnivorous fishes. At each movement up that chain shifts the ratio of nitrogen, of, of the heavy nitrogen, in what you consume. So a person or an organism that's high up on a food chain uh, has a higher proportion of the heavy nitrogen than would be trees of a person who was eating off wheat and barley or indeed um, a fish that was eating algae. So we can say that with well-recovered and carefully studied human remains. We can say certain people in certain areas were consuming fish, and they were saying in some areas they were certainly consuming them from marine sources. And in other areas, what looks like is they're consuming freshwater fish because they're getting very high nitrogen, so they're eating on a high end of the food chain. But there's not much sign that that's coming from, from marine sources. So notice that I have now trooped out a whole bunch of ecology. Yes, yeah, that's what I was about and to I, say. What I what I am saying is you cannot understand this stuff. If you say, Oh, I don't want to know anything about science. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't understand why it matters whether somebody ate fish or not. If you say, well, I just I don't want to worry about who these people are. Yeah. So we've got to we've got to work back and forth. Uh, so we have an abbess in Flanders in the sixth century who shows, who is following careful religious rules, which is much more important for these ascetics, especially in the early Middle Ages. Um, And she is clearly eating a lot of things that are high on the trophic scale. Uh, She's eating fish, but there's no sign of her consuming marine fish. If we turn to a bunch of Norsemen who showed up in Anglo-Saxon England, I think it's right around the year 1000, uh, plundering, and got caught by the Saxon army and destroyed a whole pile of bodies. Those guys had come from Norway. They had eaten very significant quantities of fish, and those fish had come from the sea. So some people eat fish from freshwater. Some people eat fish from the sea. And initially, that can probably tell you where these people are as well. We know where they are, but it'll correlate with it. Later on, that won't be the case, but we'll get to that.
1: And just to follow up on what you said, when I was reading the book, the, the last thing I expected was to see like a lot of graphs, scientific graphs showing oh. uh, chemical mm-hmm. components. Or, for example, <laughs> yes, yes. food, and and it was in the book. And it just goes to show how how in, how, how how detailed the research and uh, how rigorous the research well, has gone into this book is. I, well, I have got a lot of good friends now in the zoo archaeological community and other
0: elements of that community. They tend to re- publish psych reports. Or local scientific analyses, mm-hmm. and what makes them happy is that I read their
1: stuff and integrate it into the bigger story. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, how about the role of religion and consumption of food in general, but also fish? I'm more particularly more interested in fish. The doc- yeah. do, do religious doctrines encourage or ban the consumption of fish. Um, Christian religious
0: doctrines um neither encourage nor ban the consumption of fish. Mm-hmm. Western Christian practice, in other words, you aren't going to be saved or damned on the basis of whether you ate fish, but practice would show that you were a good Christian in various ways. So in practice, um, you demonstrate your author, or your your catholic Catholicity of of um, practice by not eating fleshy foods, not eating flesh on Fridays, or during Lent, which is about, which is 40 days in late winter and spring. Uh, and you can substitute for that flesh, you can substitute fish. It's an even bigger deal uh, during Lent because they eliminate other uh, terrestrial foods like butter and cheese during that period. They don't in some of the other fasting periods. Now, if you don't have any fish, if you are a poor lady who lives, a poor lady who lives off gruel, she doesn't get any more fish on Friday than she had bacon or steak on Tuesday. Because she can't afford any of that. And one of the things that the wealthy and powerful do, they have people give little fish, preserved fish, to the poor as a sign of their piety. And they show off that they are consuming fish because that shows what good Christians they are. And they also buy cheap fish, or we're talking now about a royal household or something, will acquire cheap little fish to give to the servants. Because you can't be the guy who's sitting there very piously eating your salmon and expect your your, your servants not to get anything, so they get herring, or some other little fishes from fresh water, or sardines if you're from the Mediterranean. Depends where you are. Um, And... um, there is, so there's a greater effect of the religious op- restrictions on the consumption of meat and permission of fish as a substitute. There is greater effect on self, some people than
1: on others. And and uh, how about let's talk about the supply of fish and consumption mm-hmm. where, up until 1000, uh, after 1000 CE, where did Europeans get their supply the fish for the consumption?
0: For the, for the 500 years prior to the year 1000, and indeed for some people much longer thereafter, everybody consumed the fish from their their local or regional aquatic ecosystems. Mm. If you lived on the upper Danube, uh, you consumed trout and bream and maybe some Hookin and maybe some sturgeon. If you lived on the On the coast in Norway, you consumed some herring, some cod, various flatfishes. If you lived on the coast in Flanders, uh, you consumed a lot of flatfish and a lot of a con relative uh, called whiting or haddock, uh, which are neither as big nor as prized as cod, but they were more very numerous on that portion of the the Atlantic uh, coastal shelf. if you were in uh, southern France, you consumed consume Mediterranean fishes. So until we get into the high and later Middle Ages, virtually everybody consumed fish from their own waters or waters nearby, waters within a couple days' transport. Why? Because fish spoil very fast. And you can't move them fast under medieval conditions. So you're not going to get fish from very far away because they will be inedible unless they have been heavily salted or something like that. And that that now requires a kind of infrastructure that only
1: gradually develops. And was it more common among aristocrats or people who have a social higher status or rank to, to consume fish? Yeah. Um,
0: if you're an important person, and have access to resources, be it the labor of others or because, or because you've been used money or wealth or other things to get the... Um, you eat higher up, you, eat, you like to eat meat, and you like to, when you can't eat meat, eat fish, and you can get the fish, um, so you will consume them. You will also prefer to consume certain fishes that have a kind of display quality. Pike, salmon, sturgeon, are the prime examples. Uh, at some points, uh, tuna uh, will play that role, especially in the Mediterranean. Big fish, big sample, big specimens of big fish marched in on a tray that put in front of the Lord and all his men say, wow, look what the Duke has got to eat. Right? Um, so they will. Their, their remains will show more fish consumption uh, if they are religious elites, they tend to show more fish consumption, particularly for the earlier period, uh, more fish consumption than if they're secular elites. The lower you go down in the strat- in a, a social structure, the less fish people consume, unless they live right in the water and they're living off of local product. Or later, as certain large-scale commercial fisheries develop and distribute this stuff People who can afford to get a little fish uh, and eat that when they can have fish rather than meat. So it works across the social scale. And that social scale varies when we're in a world with relatively few few urban elites and later on in the Middle Ages when we have significantly wealthy urban elites uh, who will also uh, deal in uh, high-quality fish. Certain certain varieties are prized, certain and they, that's shown on the market. Their prices are higher. Uh, certain varieties are looked down upon; they have much lower price, and they're what's going to get sold to poor people, to poorish people, people who are wealthy enough to buy some fish, but not so wealthy to buy the good, fish, the best. Uh, so you can't. You got to know when and where you're looking to be able to say what quite what people are going to eat, and who are artisan fishers. We okay, this practice. I, I use the term subsistence fishing, artisan fishing, and then commercialized fishing, which is a sub type of artisan. Uh, subsistence fishers are fishing for the household that's going to consume the fish. It might be their own. They go out to the local creek with nobody's looking, if or they have a right and they catch some fish and the household consumes it. They they might be indirect uh, fishermen uh, for consumption, because they are the men or employees of the Lord, but he says, go and get me fish. The abbot says, the king is coming to visit me, send my fishers out to catch fish, because we're going to serve them. But it's never going to pass through any process of exchange, it all occurs within oh, what well, we can think of as a household economy. Um, in the course of the, probably we could say the 10th, 11th centuries, as Small settlements of non-agricultural, non-elite people evolve also with elite people in them, proto-towns, and then real urbanization. You get people who want to consume and have resources to consume, but don't have the time or skills or ability to coerce others uh, to catch fish themselves. Meanwhile, the fishers for a lord or the people who manage to fish on their own can produce surpluses, and they can take those surpluses to town and exchange them for those fish for money or things in terms of money. You're an you're an English major. Uh, did you ever read the late Abalok?
1: Uh no, unfortunately. that, 12th that
0: century. It's a twelfth century middle Middle English thing that um, features uh, early Norse settlers in the northeast of England mm-hmm. and. Uh, a guy by the name of Grimm, uh, who is the eponymous, well, a, yeah, founder of Grimsky on Grimmsgate. Uh, uh, in the lay of Havelock, he is a fisherman on the coast. And then he and his apprentice or servant, Havelock, take these fish to Lincoln. It's in Lincolnshire, not York. Um, and, and sell them. And sell them for money. We also have... Uh, a dialogue um of inquiry uh of a of particular craft that so was written by an, an and Abbot Abbott uh right around that same right around the year 1000 down in the West Country uh, and he writes it in Latin It's all these little Anglo saxon boys uh you have to learn Latin and he talks about a fisherman. And this fisherman, he read, they, they 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 learned how to read about it, And then somebody cleverly in uh, glossed it all in Anglo-Saxons, which is really neat. So it's Latin and the anglo saxon And he says, so what do you do with your fish? Uh, where do you go with your fish? I take my fish to the town. Uh, what do you get there? You get I get my name. So these are early examples of artisanal fishers, people who are engaged in the craft of fishing um, and who are not doing it, for their household, or for their ward's household, but are doing it in exchange on the market. And most of these people are operating, and many of them will continue to operate for another half millennium. In this local situation, they're catching local fishes and selling them nearby, and so that some of sometimes they're part timers. We can catch the transition uh, as some people who've been for centuries working as obligatory fishers for a Lord get permission to sell what the Lord doesn't want in the local market. And they pay a license to be able to do that. And they are transitioning from being subsistence fishers to be commercial, but small scale. So artisanal fishers are relatively small scale. People with maybe just a net, maybe the net and their son, um, and the wife prepares the stuff in markets. Maybe a boat, and they hire a couple of people to work with them for a share of the cash. But they're selling that stuff locally, And that will almost all be handled with either fresh fish or with very short-term preservation, throwing a bit of salt on them um, or pickling or whatever, which can be done and it's good enough. Some fishes will be good to eat for a couple of weeks after they've been soaked in salt brine or something of like that. So those are the commercial fishers. And those are the ones who make up the Fisherman's Guild very, very soon by the late. By the 12th century, 13th century, in Milan, in London, in uh, the coastal towns of Flanders, uh, in Strasbourg, and all up and down the Rhine, uh, and the towns on in the in in the Danube system, they pop up uh, more or less as soon as towns get big enough to support a few of these fellows uh, and their families, and it, you get a, some standard social uh, uh, social patterns. The men fish all night, come home with the fish bomb, uh go to sleep, and the wife puts the things in a basket on her head and goes off to town to sell
1: it. And I'm also curious to know the role of um, local authorities or municipal authorities in regulating these markets. Well, oh, okay.
0: okay. Honest and places where trade takes place. And people figure out that traders can do good things, but they can also try to put one over on other people. Uh, that's true for grain traders. I'll sell you a sack of grain like with a rock in it uh, underneath the grain. Uh, so very early on, key subsistence needs are controlled by local markets, either by the Lord, who is still in charge of the town, or by some commission or committee or municipality that is more or less self-governing. And so they... They, we tend to hear about control over grain trades earliest because that's key to subsistence for everyone. Uh, meat trades have all sorts of problems with regard to uh, freshness and other sorts of things, so they get, they get controlled further, up, a little bit later probably. And some butchers, because they can't sell meat during land, some butchers are, become fishmongers in land. In big towns, fishmongers are a separate craft, And they had the butchers get shut down for a month. Uh, The fishmongers are working the whole time. And they too. um, I bought some fish a couple of days ago, but they still don't smell too bad, all put about. The town has regulations, very characteristically, you bring in the fish. They have to be sold on the open market. You can't sell them at your house or anything else. You have to sell them on the open market. They have to be displayed in public, um, and you get one day. In cool seasons, you might get two days. Then they come along at the end of that day, the, the local cops basically, come and cut the tail off the fish. You can sell those fish tomorrow, but that's the sign that this is not a fresh fish. This is a day old. If you try to sell fish later on, they, they mark them in various kinds of ways. One of the things that happens, some I think they're the ones in Lübeck. Um, Fishmonger gets caught selling stale, rotting fish. Then they put him in a chain around his neck and they stick him in the stocks. So he's seen there with these rotten fish. In another place in Zurich, these they have to be the ones who now dump the whole load of rotten fish into the river to float off downstream. So there's 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 a whole then weights and measures and all that sort of thing mean that markets are part of the way medieval municipalities took care of their people. Uh, their people as consumers. And also their people in a sense as traders who um need to be nudged to make certain they trade honestly so both of these things so any medieval town of any size has significant market regulations and the fish markets are different only that fish are a rather unusual uh commodity because they uh, spoil so fast uh,
1: what about the environmental consequences of high medieval demographic and economic growth what was the impact the environmental impacts?
0: okay Um, Let let me respond to that first by saying that I spend a lot of time on some of that in the book. um, Well, I write the book to try to understand how fish fishing and fish consumption fit into the medieval world. And in some extent, some of these things will be almost unchanged from 800 to 1600 others will change very significantly and i like to like to play that off and then I'm interested in how that reflects back on aquatic systems um and the question of the impact of high medieval growth and the development of fisheries under conditions of growth uh, is certainly a, a big one I actually it's one of the things that got me into what ended up being this book uh trying to figure that out. Uh, coming from the economic history point of view and trying to get economic historians to recognize the role of things natural. Uh, medieval growth meant rising demand for fish, especially with demand via markets, which provoked insensified fishing as people saw an opportunity uh, to catch more fish. And the questions of whether or not there was sufficient impact on just on the fishery itself, of fisheries themselves, on fish populations is one whole question. Um, it looks to me like intensely interested, high-prestige high, high prestige freshwater and inshore fisheries were weakened or at least pushed to, close to their limits by the, as a direct consequence simply of expanding number of mouths to fill. Uh, secondly, the population increase meant a massively greater increase in demand for cereal grains, and that that provoked uh, significant woodland clearance and other greater intensification of cereal production. These had the result of uh, increasing erosion and siltation in inland waters and in some coastal waters, uh, they also had the consequence of making a runoff regime go from something that was relatively stable through the year to something that fluctuated very considerably from high water to low water. Um, the siltation and erosion directly affect fa- uh, fa- fish, uh, both physically if there's just too much mud in the water, uh, but also in terms of the cover of their habitat. The variability of the runoff affects many fishes are are evolved to spawn under certain kinds of circumstances. And if there's a change in that, especially in a river situation, um, that will affect the fish and the whole aquatic, The whole well, like the whole aquatic system, and then it will also affect the fish. Thirdly, we have the demographic and urbanization features. So towns evolve, Emerge, grow. Uh, Paris probably has over a hundred thousand in the 13th century. Venice is almost that big. Uh, the Italian, the Flemish um, towns would total much more than that, but the biggest of them is only about sixty or seventy thousand. Um, and this increases organic pollution. The same kind of thing we got in spot cases in the countryside. Two hundred and fifty monks all used the same with trains that flushed into a little river, uh, so that it that increases organic pollution, uh, higher nutrients, uh, more eutrophication. It decreases the quality of water. Uh, we know this from the algae recovered in sequences of uh, uh, of excavations from around the beach near Basel. We also have it for the um, the fleet that little one time river that the Thames in London. Um, uh, this growth of the economy and its continued growth, even as the population drops off after thir- in the course of the 14th century, uh, in mining and craft work means another whole set of effluents are flowing into rivers, some of them directly toxic to fish, uh, some of them rather changing the whole ecosystem. So there's a whole lot of industrial evolution, effluents, effluents uh, that have a different kind of impact. Most of this impact is local or regional. Numbers are not so great. All this sort of stuff is such that you may have intense pollution for 30 kilometers below Paris, and then the natural processes will tend to clean up that sort of stuff. The Senate Paris all called long. So did the, uh, the river in Nuremberg, whose name I'm being dumb and misremembering, uh, And they talk about it. And there, archaeological excavations of the riverbed show bones, bits of craftwork that were broken, and other stuff. So this stuff is flowing into into the rivers. Uh, The mining release from the canines in England of lead has produced mud banks in the area of the ooze around York that still can be dated back to the 13th century that have multiples of currently acceptable levels of lead. The same thing with, that's largely, lead is a major byproduct of silver mining, or really silver is a byproduct of lead mining uh, because they come, tend to come together. Uh, and the same sort of thing is true of a couple of streams in the Black Forest and then a couple of streams in the hearts. Again, if you go to intensive mining areas through the Middle Ages and look at what happens to the water supply in places where we can get gatable deposits, you will see chemical transformations. So all of these things have impact on aquatic systems. They have impact on other systems too. My concern is is aquatic systems and how this affects what's available to human beings uh, and available to other fishes up and down the the thing. So we have a significant diminution of the uh, particularly high um, trophic level fishes like less so perhaps for pike, but certainly for for sturging uh, and for salmon. And we can trace the decline of salmon populations in that case, perhaps primarily because of the construction of dams to power water mills to grind the grain that were such that the salmon couldn't get upstream to their spawning. Uh, and all those things can be tracked uh, oh, oh, most commonly at relatively local level, but then you have to build the mosaic to put the little pieces together uh to say this is the pattern that we find.
1: And uh was there a bit of shortage of culturally produced fish? And if so, how did the medieval communities react to this? I would say the shortage is of culturally captured natural fish.
0: Uh it's natural populations that we're starting. They're the remember, they're the ones everybody's been using since the since the end of the Roman period. Uh and um, people are aware, powerful people in less powerful people, of shrinking or limiting supplies. the so King of France says, the problem is the fishers are doing something and we're not getting fish that are as big as they used to be. Now, we all know that if you keep on cropping off the same population, you will crop off fish before they reach a big enough size. And so the average size of fish anyway in a population will shrink, not for biological reasons, but because they're, they're getting cropped off. Big fish are fish that have lived a long time. If the same fish population is fished by the same technology year after year, fish that might have made it to age 8 get cropped off at age 5, 6, or 7, and so you don't get the really big ones. And there's archaeological evidence to show that uh, for flatfishes, two varieties of flash fishes for Flanders and, uh, and Netherlands. And in that place, it's particularly interesting because this Shrinking, the disappearance of the big flatfish um, is evident late 13th, early 14th century. Then we have a human population crash, the consequence of economic crises and the Black Death. Um, And in the 15th century, you're back up to big flatfish. Population returns to normal and low to the previous uh, sizes uh, in that region by 1500. And again, the big flatfish disappeared. From the market. And there's no reason to think anybody's changing the techniques that would say they were catching them one time, they were not catching the other time. It's rather that the the stock of those fish has diminished. I argue elsewhere in the book uh, that uh, we probably have evidence for overcropping of local herring populations under conditions where climate also has some kind of an impact. And that's a fairly complicated argument, Uh, less than what I've just given you to this. Okay. So what did people do? Uh, one of the things that was very evident is that from as soon as we could start tracking some prices, fish prices are under the rise. They rise fairly slowly. They might flatten off uh, in the 14th century, but they'll pick up again, you know, depending on the species and the kind of how they're being marketed. But fish r- r- price prices are rising. And the other thing that rises in value is the right to fish, which is sought by Lord's in part because then they can charge people out a license, and in part because part of being a prestigious board is I control all of this. So the fishing rights are connected to the value of fish, but they have other value that comes from the display value of uh, running an estate. Um, secondly, oh yeah, that's that's, that's so phrasing prices, the importance of fishing rights and privatization. Um, which means that the kind of people who were catching fish for their families in the local creek uh, in the 10th century may not be able to fish that thing at all by the 14th because the Lord demands that they pay a license or he leases the fishing out to a commercial guy. And you can't go and catch fish for your family. And we've got English court cases that are very much sort of that. Somebody dragged in front of the the village court because because he's been poaching fish of that sort. Thirdly, you get the market and fisheries regulations, uh, which regulate it regulate the the sale of fish. They try to encourage maximum supply and with the fewest numbers of middlemen, especially for these fresh things. In Spanish towns, they um, issue. Well, one, two, or three-year contracts to someone to bring to supply the town with fish, and he won't have to. He he can charge the sales tax, but he won't have to pay it to the company, right? So they do all sorts of things in that respect. Secondly, there's regulation on capture techniques, uh, which is to say regulations about forms of techniques that, that either catch too too many little fish, and so that's very very clear. We want something to will not scoop up the little fish until they grow big and we have the Scottish law of early early 13th century which says you have to lift the gates uh, from from Saturday evening till Monday morning so the salmon can go through to spawn you can't just catch them all we have wonderful quotations from the guildmaster from uh, from Constance on the Lake of Constance where an interstate consortium has controlled the fisheries regulations for the whole state, for the whole lake, uh, since the 1450s. Um, and in the 14, 1520s, I think it's 20s, um, he's trying to get the people at the other end of the lake to join up. And he says if you could catch a pailful of little perch this year, but put them back instead, next year you'll catch a whole mound of big perch. So they're in, regulations seek to do this. If a fish is too small, it can't be sold on the market. Uh, and, um, and then we get things that are directly what we would call conservation in the North American sense, uh, regulations or arrangements such that they're taking fish from one surplus water and putting them into another or where they're organizing to attempt to uh, breed fish or at least catch little fish and move them to some place to get to be bigger uh, or where they want to keep maintain certain habitats. And some of that, there are law, there are petitions and the laws against the use of bottom trawls and a lot of shallow saltwater um, because they tear up the flowers of the sea on which the little fish eat. We've got that, that sort of thing. So from, from French sources, from some English sources and from some Italian sources. So people are very aware, they're aware That there is a danger of shortage, and they respond in the various kinds of ways people respond to a shortage. And because it's a natural resource, one of those is controlling the exploitation and trying to make it more productive. So that's all that. And
1: and, and you you talk about a shift, let's say a shift in the relationship between medieval people towards the marine, uh, towards aquatic culture, uh, towards the end of the Middle Ages. How did this shift impact, uh, let's say, the environmental history? The
0: shift, I think of the shift as being a consequence. Um, Mm. If I pick up from what I was just talking about, um, inland people can't get fresh fish. People are not entirely can't get lots of fresh fish if they've overfished or they're hitting the limits of it. So we get the development, probably first in northern France at elite estates of conscious careful, designed, planned, managed fish culture. There's a culture that starts in that area probably on Breen, or Brahmasparma, which is a cyprinid that only grows about big. Um, and um, at the same time, through unintentional human activity, carp, which were native to Europe only below Vienna in the Danube system, had spread westwards, and when they get to France... They discover these things grow bigger, faster, uh, if you put them in ponds. So in France, we get, in the 13th century, the first sign of very self-conscious management of, of carp, which are being domesticated, and that technology will then spread back eastwards. So by the 15th century, uh, certainly the early 16th century, the places with the most famous carp farms are places in Czechia, in Poland. And in Austria, some parts of some parts of Germany, where they have multiple ponds of hundreds of hectares and a management scheme that moves these fish around so you get protected little guys who grow and then they put them in a baker pond to grow some more. And then they get up to what they want is a harvesting sign of about two kilos. And then those are sold fresh. There's no point in peddling this sort of stuff stuff to Flanders or in England. And England doesn't actually get carp for it out of 200 years. Uh, but it matters a lot for those elites who want to fancy fresh fish on the continent. Uh and what happens, one of the things that happen is the people start thinking of fish as something that's a human artifact. We have a instructions to a survey team that's investigating the uh, states of the things the cathedral, cathedral chapter of Krakow. Um and they're supposed it's early sixteenth century. And they are supposed to inspect all the Potential for resources and, and income from, the, from an estate. And these are clearly some of these estates that managed ponds, pond systems. And one of their instructions if there's no fish in the pond, find out who took them out. It's fish don't happen because of nature, they happen because somebody put them in and somebody took them out. So the fish are the fishy. There been a little bit of move away from the fish as you start getting this market stuff because people are are not catching the fish themselves. They're dealing with that through, through, through fishers and ultimately through fishmongers. A fish is something that you encounter on the dockside. it's not something you encounter in the water. Uh, you get this notion. So there's a greater distance in all senses between the consumers and the fish in their aquatic environment. This is exacerbated by the other response to limitation, which is the response to the frontiers marine frontiers, where there's always more fish further away. You run out of codfish close to home, you look a little further. You run out of codfish in all the little est- uh, of herring, the little estuaries of England uh, and of the low countries, and you focus in on these massive numbers of cod that spawn in the English Straits. And now, sorry, not cod, it's just, this last part is all herring. Uh, and now, if you want to get herring, you don't get a little stack of salt dried herring from the beach, from the town 30 kilometers away. You get a barrel of herring who have, for technical reasons, been had the gills pulled out and the guts come with it, then packed in brine and sealed up, and they will now last close to a year, maybe more, and they can be shipped perhaps by an Italian merchant, certainly by a German merchant, from the shores of the Baltic or the shores of the North Sea, even— as a special treat for people during Lent from a Florentine merchant all the way to to Florence. Uh, but everybody buys pickled brined herring, and they are the food for the poor. But the poor don't poor probably never come anywhere near the live herring, much less the waters in which the herring lived. It is something further away. Uh, so the frontier fishery, the artificial fisheries, fish farming, fish into a human artifact. The frontier fisheries, uh, and we have a quotation from the son of John Cabot, uh, who his actual real name is Juan Caboto, uh, who was a Venetian-based navigator who, like Columbus, could get people back from going across the big ocean and come back home. Um, And he led this trip that bumped into the Grand Banks and disappeared on the next voyage possibly try to find them again more often, but they were found, and they were being fished. Uh, And his son, Sebastian, who claimed to have been on the voyage that actually did get to Newfoundland, Um, but he probably wasn't, he said, there there are infinite fish. So this is this other notion. The fish aren't limited. Fish are infinite. Nature is completely infinite. So we can make our own nature as a human artifact, or we can go to where it's infinite. And if we run out, you go beyond it, and you go to the next horizon, then you go to the next horizon, um, until we hit the late 20th century, classically, as it were, and there is no more next horizon. You've only got one planet. Uh, and I think you can see this thread from the end of the Middle Ages onwards. And if Europeans opened up the seas of the world in the 16th century, that's what, that's what came along with it. One of my other lines is, they knew how to manage a limited stock, but they left that luggage on the dock when they went to sea. And this was just, go beat out the other guy, get to the biggest mother load of the silvery Uh So their relation changes. It doesn't change for everybody right away, but it shifts in that regard. Oh. And I think that is one of the, things that comes out of why I work with how did medieval people deal with, you know, white fishing uh, to understanding how that might have something to say to folk nowadays.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's quite fine. Like I told you before we started recording, I've been reading a lot of sto- a lot of histories of mi- middle ages, and I, it just fascinates me how relevant they are to today's yes. issues yes. of problems. Yes. And again, reading this book, and I do like you to talk a little bit more about it, for example, how these developments of fishes and practices, pres- uh, preservation practices and methods, innovative capturing methods yes. and everything, in a way foreshadowed maybe or pointed towards today's global fisheries crisis.
0: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Fish are, it's called, are the first biological product of the New World brought to Europe in quantity and consumed in, probably consumed in Europe. I mean, it's one thing to steal gold from the Aztecs and the Incas. It's another thing. It will be bringing these fish, what had been fished little, if at all, by native, because they're offshore, by, by indigenous North Americans. Um, but now this is big chunks of European biomass. Oh, sorry, of North American biomass being transported for consumption in Europe. And that's different also from the transport of North American bio as it were, maize, tomatoes, All that stuff. In that case, you're not carrying the crop over, you're just carrying the seed, and you take a century or so to figure out hey, we can grow this stuff here too. But in this case, you're not taking the eggs of these fish, you're taking the fish uh, and you're consuming them. And I I think they're interesting. Quite, there is a significant change in the 16th century. The one reason my book stops then. But one of the puzzles to me is actually who is consuming the salt dried cod from Newfoundland uh, that are flooded. European market by the middle of the 16th century to the point where they're pushing those Norwegians off the market because the Norwegians can't compete on price uh, well, I, I, I at some other things so it does point uh, in that direction uh, when I originally was doing up the book I was going to do more of that and it was just going to become too much uh, so I think of it that medieval Europeans experience fishing is a precursor, in several ways, are the 20th, 21st century global fisheries crisis. It's one of a whole bunch of crises in the in the the the, the, the in the the biosphere, uh, some of which also back in the Middle Ages is affected by changes in in in, in climate. But that's a, that's something that when I started with this project in the 90s. We couldn't really say, because we didn't have good enough climate data. Uh, we now have decade scale temperature and precipitation material for large chunks of Western Europe uh, by the end of the Middle Ages. Now we can start drawing some connection with some of our few quantitative records that we have for these medieval fish. Uh, and they mesh in interesting, really interesting kinds of ways. Uh, which I kind of thought at the beginning, we could at least say for some of these freshwater fishes, uh, but I think we can now say it uh, in a different ways for, um, for the marine fisheries as well.
1: Uh, Professor Richard Hoffman, thank you very, very much for your time to talk with us on New Books Network about this great book and sharing your thoughts here with us. Okay, my pleasure. You've discovered I, uh, I, I'm i not able to shut up when it talks about dead get- <laughs> fish.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Go Goodbye, though. Bye.